Hello and welcome to another episode of the Rheumatology Podcast. My name's Chris Winkup. I'm a Clinical Research Fellow at the Department of Rheumatology at UCL in London. This week I had the pleasure of discussing a recent paper by Professor Marta Alacon-Rakelm, who is a Professor and Head of Medical Genomics at Genio in Grenada, Spain. I was delighted to be able to speak to her about the recent paper published in May in the journal entitled Precision Medicine in Autoimmune Diseases, Fact or Fiction. It's a really interesting topic and it's great to be able to learn from an expert in this week's podcast. So thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me about this. Uh, So we've got a few questions. I think this is actually a really interesting area and something that's going to be really important for us to think about in rheumatology in the future. So it's great to be able to speak to you about this today. Thinking about precision medicine, this, this is a term that's used a bit more recently, but many people are still quite unfamiliar. So, so what do we mean by precision medicine, in your opinion? Well, I believe that precision medicine is the way that we can put a patient into a certain group or individually, so to say, as an individual that has quite specific features or characteristics. For instance, has a certain weight, has a certain height, but also within that person's body there are certain differences from another person or another person and another person so the way of really being able to let's say classify or stratify or put that person into a certain for instance category let's say i don't know if that would be the correct way of saying it that would give us the possibility of knowing exactly what that individual molecular pattern is in a sense in blood in tissues and then we can actually treat that person not only with medicine, but actually consider that person in a particular way so that we are more precise and more individual, so to say, in the way we actually treat an individual and a patient. And, and I notice in your paper, you mentioned a number of different molecular methods uh, mm-hmm. that are really kind of at the forefront of, of changing our understanding, in particular with regards to precision medicine. So, so what kind of technologies and techniques have, have really helped propel this area? What kind of things are being used to utilize precision medicine that perhaps some of our listeners uh, may be slightly less familiar with from, from the usual tests we do in clinical practice? Sure. Actually, I could say that the revolution in how we test in a high-throughput way uh, a large number of individuals for a large number of tests began some 10 years ago, more or less, particularly in genetics, when we were using what is called microarrays. This allowed to look at different sites in the genome, for instance, that were already more or less investigated, more or less known, and more and more were actually put each year. For instance, an array was starting with 100,000 features to more than a million or more than 2 million. But eventually, more or less during that time, in the middle of that time, new sequencing methodologies, new sequencing technologies and possibilities arose that allowed to actually read the complete genome, each and every DNA base or RNA. Well, the RNA, you always have to convert it into DNA to be able to read it, but each of those bases one at a time which is called now whole genome sequencing. Or we can take, for instance, those parts of the genes that code the proteins, so we call the exome sequencing, for instance. A lot of rare diseases have mutations, for instance, in a certain gene, and so exome sequencing is very useful for identifying those types of mutations. So I would say that is what we call next-generation sequencing really revolutionized our possibilities of studying very deeply and at every single base 
of a person's genome or transcriptome in order to find a number of things that we're able to find nowadays. And so with all of these new technologies, I think one of the other things that you mentioned in the paper is this advent of newer single cell technologies. What do you think single cell technologies have done to our understanding of, of pathogenesis of disease and, and personalized medicine and precision medicine? Well, single cell is very interesting, particularly for specific experiments. And in the case, for instance, of lupus, a paper I mentioned there by the group of Jacques Banchero and Virginia Pascual mm. uh, at Cornell University, uh, what they do is they look at lupus patients, uh, their, B their peripheral blood mononuclear cells in particular, and then they check each and every cell what the expression pattern of each cell looks like. And that gives the possibility of really knowing, before we kind of knew the whole thing, in a whole, you know, mm. oh, we can see that there is a production of uh, interferon or there's a production of uh, BAF in mm. the blood of patients with lupus. Now we're able to see in each particular cell which genes are being expressed. Uh, and those genes can mean different things. They can mean a specific pathways within the cell. They can mean those are producing, those are the effector producers of a certain protein or uh, transcription factors that are actually changing and initiate, for instance, the differentiation of the specific types of cells. And that can be done not only in peripheral blood cells, as they did, mm. but also in tissues. For instance, you could go to the kidney or you can go to the, to the synovial tissue, for instance, in rheumatoid arthritis, mm. and actually look at those specific cells. And that's being very important in the sense of really specifying, okay, this patient has a certain type of damage in their synovial that this other patient does not. So that has actually led to very interesting possibilities when it comes to, for instance, targets for therapy. The group at the Broad Institute in Harvard, for instance, showed that there were different fibroblasts that were actually interacting with vascular tissue, the endothelium, and then could see that there was an expression of notch signaling that was increased. And what they proposed, and they actually tested in a mouse model, they showed that they could inhibit this notch signaling using a notch inhibitor. Mm. So that is really very interesting. And that, that really is a very good example, I think, of the possibilities that this sort of research can actually lead to. And, and thinking about something you mentioned there in terms of the interferon signature. So mm -hmm. I think you mentioned in the paper that this is something that's shared by a number of different autoimmune diseases. For our listeners' understanding, what have we discovered about the interferon signature and, and how is that applying to our, our understanding of treatment of, of various autoimmune diseases such as lupus? Well, in the first place, actually, the interferon, what we call the interferon signature was discovered many years ago by two groups, actually the one of Virginia Pasquale and also the one of Tim Behrens, mm -hmm. uh, Emily Beckler uh, was the first author. And that was actually very important because it actually showed another type of pathogenesis in the development of lupus. In a way, it was suspected that something that we call the toll-like receptors, mm -hmm. which actually recognize nucleic acids and induce something like interferon production, were involved in the disease because of mouse models and a number of things. But this actually, in a way, revolutionized our knowledge. And then what was important there, it was that one could see that there were patients that had these interferon signatures, but patients that did not. And we actually mentioned a paper that we published last year in Arthritis and Rheumatology, mm -hmm. where 
uh, what we see in different autoimmune diseases is that you have a group of patients that do share this interferon signature regardless of the disease, of, of the clinical diagnosis of the disease, but then you have others that do not show this or show it in, um, uh, they have more of an inflammatory pattern related with the interferon signature. We actually believe that this is a sort of, so patients pass from a certain signature to another, but mm. we don't know right now is which one is first, okay? It's very important that now a number of clinical trials, at least in lupus, are considering the interferon signature in order to decide which patients actually might respond to a certain treatment. An obvious target for this treatment are molecules related to the interferon signature or that induce this interferon signature. Like for instance, interferon type 1 itself or receptor for the interferon type 1. Actually, the second is, a more, is I would say, a more a smarter type of solution because there are so many type 1 interferons. We have many genes, like 28 type 1 interferon genes. But there's only one receptor for all of them. Mm. So if you block that receptor, then you block the continued stimulation for the production of type 1 interferon because it's actually uh, goes around, so to say. Okay. The moment the cell produces it, it also goes back to that cell and induces more production. Mm. So it sounds like precision medicine is going to be particularly useful for very heterogeneous diseases like lupus. Do you think there's a particular time point at which we should be looking to use this technique. For example, do you think it's better to use uh, precision medicine techniques early at the time of diagnosis or at time of flare, or could it be something that's used in, in just routine patient care as patients come, come up for clinical visits? I think that's an important question. Actually, many times these signatures are visible only when a patient flares or is going to flare because genes then start to be expressed, okay? Mm. Um, so probably, and most of the times when a patient with lupus arrives at the clinic, it's because the person is feeling bad and then is probably flaring. The steroids have been used a lot during mm. a very long time. Mm. Hydroxychloroquine has been actually not a replacement, but almost, mm. and other immunosuppressors, aphatyoprine and others. But I do believe, I mean, that some of the biologic drugs, I would mm. say, that are more targeting certain genes that are involved in those pathways. I think that maybe the cost is the main problem, but if I would say I, I would believe that the best thing would be to treat the patients as early as possible with the drug directly to their pathway, which is being causing their disease. And that's very important. I don't think if we would use precision medicine in that way and say this patient has an interferon signature, which mm -hmm. is actually related with other molecules that we know, like BAF, for example, and, and certain alpha-antibodies as well, SSA, SSB, for instance, we already have the markers to know what we should treat those patients with. It could be an anti-interferon, an anti-BAF, you know, any of those could be used. We don't know really exactly what would be for the rituximab, for instance, treatment. I don't want to, you know, speculate too much. Uh, or even, but then you have other patients that develop these inflammatory processes that you might need. The problem, I think we have two problems. Number one, the cost. And number two, how long can you treat them like that? Instead of treating them before with something that is like more general. But that more general is it's not really stopping in many times the process of disease mm. and the chronicity and the damage that can be present in tissues. Of course, if you do the trial and error type of treating patients, you're always 
kind of, you know, not stopping that early enough because the patient may not respond. Then you have to try something else and then you have to try something else again. So I would say one could start using more direct therapies according to the molecular patterns that a patient has. I think that would be much more effective. Then the problem is how long you can treat them like that. That's another problem, of course. And then we have to go on using and again, learn about those processes, right? What happens later? Mm -hmm. So I think that kind of brings me on onto the final question. Precision medicine is something that is, is being talked about more and more. Where do you think we'll be using precision medicine in clinical practice in, in say, 10 years time? Do you think that we'll be capable of doing these kind of techniques in clinical practice? Or do you think that new technologies will supersede what we're currently doing? If, if you had a crystal ball, where would you, where do you expect us to be going in terms of precision medicine? in rheumatology in the next 10 years? Well, I, what I think would be great is that we can find, let's say, a proxy of those molecular patterns that we can easily test in blood, for instance, you know, that I can take. In a way, we already kind of have it, particularly for the interferon signal, because it's so much associated with anti-SSA antibiotics and the presence of BAF in blood. So it's probably already that's something that we could think about and make this particular test with testing those type of markers that we already know mm -hmm. and see whether we have that group of patients let's say uh, on the secure part so to say right so I, I i think that's something that we researchers or even biotechnology and companies that have to do with diagnosis for instance I think they should try to do this type of studies, you know, try to find this particular marker that you can use in the clinic and that correlates perfectly well with the molecular pattern. Mm. In a way, we have them, you know, in a way, we do have them already. Just we have to understand that each patient is different and that, and, and I, we know in lupus that each patient is different, that's mm. for sure, okay? But really, what to test in order to know I have to treat this patient with this, this patient with this, or this patient with this. So I think that's the most important. So it's really an interaction. I think more and more we are joining forces uh, between clinical and research groups like mine, trying to speak more clearly what everything is. And so I don't know how long it will take, you know, to really get to that point. Mm -hmm. And then the other point would be how easy is it to implement something, as you said the molecular tests that we use today are not easily implementable in the lab, right? Yeah, in, the, yeah. in the clinical laboratory, for instance. That would be very costly, probably. Prices are going down, so we need to find this type of substitutes, let's say, for those molecular signatures that allow us to check a patient. And then you have other things which are tissue damage, you know, that, that might be different in different patients as well. We know in lupus you have different types of nephritis, mm -hmm. nephritis, right? So there, there's a lot more to do in that regard. Great. Well, thank you very much for, for answering so many of my questions today. What I'd do is I'd really encourage everyone who's listening to this podcast to, to check out the paper. Uh, it's entitled Precision Medicine in Autoimmune Diseases, Fact or Fiction. And I think this is going to be something that we see used more and more, and the term will be heard more and more in rheumatology in the coming years. So I really appreciate you giving us uh, some highlights and some explanations of, of what to look for. So, so thank you very much for speaking with me today. Thank you very much, Chris. It was Thank a pleasure. You.
So I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Rheumatology Podcast. Once again, I'd recommend that you check out that paper entitled Precision Medicine in Autoimmune Diseases, Fact or Fiction, published in Rheumatology in May 2021. This is a really exciting area of medicine and I'm sure it's something we'll be hearing an awful lot more of in the future. Thanks for joining me this week.